The only thing we have to offer to another human being is our being, is our state of being. If I protest against war angrily, don't you see? I am creating the very thing I'm trying to get rid of. That it is only when one is free of attachment that one can make a statement that does not create its polar opposite. Hello, I'm Darren Steele, and I coach queer people to lead from their difference to make a difference. Now, just a reminder, if you haven't already done so, head on over to my website at darrensteele.com, and I'll put the link in the show notes, and download my new book, Think Queerly, Meditations and Critical Reflections on Liberating Humanity. It's basically a collection of short aphorisms and reflections, and it is very much based in or feels like the Tao Te Ching, but written from a queer perspective. So today, I want to talk about how can we avoid creating the very thing we're fighting against. Now, that question is taken from the post on Instagram, and I opened with that sound bite from Ram Das. He also says in um, a different article that inner social action is necessary in order to make our outer actions productive. So what does that mean exactly? This all opened up or shone light on a question I've had to myself lately is why I've been so silent. Why I haven't been publishing and podcasting. And nowhere near as prolific as what I stated I was going to do. And I proudly proclaimed that on the 1st of January, 2020. When I don't know how to respond, I'm not in the right place yet. See, I think it's pretty easy to be a prolific writer or a podcaster if you keep your topics to something general. If you keep your subject matter polarizing. So take a look at Fox News and some of the unmentionable show hosts and pundits on that platform, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Give an angry person a microphone a microphone, or a platform, and they will publish. They will produce content multiple times a day. YouTube is a breeding ground for right-wing ideology and hatred and fascism and anti-Semitism. But when it comes to a thoughtful response, one that comes from a place deep inside of you that some might term spiritual or your soul, a place of perfect equanimity, well, that wisdom is rare because of the required emotional labor and humility to offer a balanced and humane response. Of course, it is easy to read the news or watch the news and then go on a podcast or write an article and that just stands in direct opposition to the viewpoint I disagree with. And to be fair, 
The issue is that my words and my tone and my argument are just that. They're argumentative and defensive posturing. It's like, oh, hey, hey, look at me over here. I'm a social justice warrior. Pay attention to me. I've got an opinion. And I see this far too often in LGBTQ-focused articles and comments on Medium. I've talked about this in a couple of uh, podcasts ago. How about, you know, we tend to eat our own within our own community. We attack our own sometimes with more anger and disrespect than we would the larger um community or or status quo that is seeking to control or suppress us. And I know that I have written like this and spoken like this. I'm just working to make sure that that is a feature of my past and not my present and not my future. So how are we supposed to have an opinion about something without defending it? Now, throughout today's episode, I'm going to read a number of quotations from Ram Dass, um, and I will have all the links to where these came from in the show notes. So how are we supposed to have an opinion about something without defending it? Quoting Ram Dass, The most pressing issue is the polarization of our fellow humans with whom we vigorously disagree. We may find it nearly impossible to have any constructive dialogue with those whose views we oppose. This creates a kind of divergence within us that gives power to a sense of righteousness. End quote. Quickly, if you don't know who Ram Dass is, he passed away very recently. Uh, Was a Harvard professor, Richard Alpert, um, in psychology, I believe, and did a lot of work with Timothy Leary, uh, one of the first people at Harvard to experiment with acid uh, in the research labs, and then went on and studied meditation in India and became something of a guru. And I really appreciate his approach and way of viewing the world and I hope you do too throughout this podcast with what I share with you to try and explain what I'm trying to understand and what I'm trying to accomplish within myself. Because it's incredibly challenging and and it sometimes feels impossible to write a response from a place of loving kindness and acceptance for an, that, that recognizes the other person as a human being when you feel like they're attacking you for who you are or for wanting to have certain rights or freedoms, it's difficult to maintain that emotional integrity to offer an alternative solution that improves the situation and the, the humanity of the interaction. To quote Ram Dass again, if I identify with any side of any position, then that attachment to that side makes me see the opposite side in terms of an object as them. I'm going to read it again. If I identify with any side of any position, then that attachment to that side, that attachment to that side, makes me see the opposite side in terms of an object as them. Seeing another being as them is what the problem is. Seeing another being as them is what the problem is. I see that the only law or rule of all human relations, the only rule of the game, 
is to put your own consciousness in a place where you are no longer attached to a polarized position. Even though you may, by the nature of the game contracts you're involved in, be forced to play out a polarized role. End quote. Now, so how can I, how can we as a society, and, and especially within our so-called tribes, so when you're in a, a group of people, if you define as LGBTQ, for example, how can we seek to practice, practice equanimity, empathy, and open-hearted response in the face of so much destabilization, polarization, division, hatred, racism, prejudice, our rights being taken away as LGBTQ people. How are we supposed to respond to that without wanting to get up and protest in the streets? Reading from Ram Dass again. What happens in the presence of that destabilization, where there is human unconsciousness, is that people get frightened. Where there is human unconsciousness, people get frightened. And when they get frightened, they use certain mechanisms. They go into denial. They become more fundamentalist. They try to find values they can hold on to, to ward off evil. They cling and become more ultra-nationalist. There's more ethnic prejudice. There's more racial prejudice and anti-Semitism. It all increases because this fear isn't just in us. This is a worldwide thing. Do you see that? In, in one paragraph that so clearly, succinctly explains the problem, we are out of our minds. And I'm going to speak to the neuroscience of what that means. But we are running around like animals acting out of the behaviors, the needs, the fears, and everything else required by our ancient, our older human brains, from which most of what we do is entirely unconscious. But this is what makes the collective unconsciousness of us versus them. So how do we go about calming our fears? How do we get back into our minds? How do we find a safe place within ourselves to find solutions and ultimately a new approach, a new way of looking at our problems through a new way of thinking and an elevated consciousness? This is part of the work I've talked about when I speak to queer leadership, trying to see things through a different lens, not to lead people directly but to behave in a way that allows other people to see that we are taking ownership for our thoughts, for our actions, for our behaviors. I would bring it down to study, reflection, practice, silence, and meditation. Now, I can only speak to the personal about each of these qualities, these of these actions, Studying is something that is easy for me. I'm great at it. I've been studying most of my adult life since high school, from college to university, 
to courses and programs and working with coaches. And I'm currently engaged now in a year-long program about neuroscience and how that applies to the work I do as a coach. Now, reflection is my forte. (laughs) One of my best friends has repeatedly told me he thinks that I'm one of the most self-examined people he's ever met. And I wonder sometimes, is that actually a curse? And I don't quite mean that in a bad way, but I'm always thinking, sometimes overthinking, analyzing my thoughts, reviewing my actions, questioning my behaviors and patterns. And it can be easy to get lost in that self-observation or to become very self-critical and looking at what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, instead of what's right and what's good and how I'm improving. Practice. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes for improvement. And practice is something I know I'm also very good at. If I'm doing any kind of work on myself, working with another coach, taking a training or studying something, I will take action on what I learn. I will take action when it's recommended that I I try to answer some questions or, or go and do something or try and observe something in my day about something that I've just learned. And why wouldn't I do that if I'm investing to improve in myself and my skills? Well, not practicing would be just consumption. It would just be taking in the material for the sake of taking it in and not seeking improvement. Now, silence. A necessary, absolutely necessary quality in my life. I see that as something from my upbringing when I was ADHD. And sometimes I have aspects of that in my life, but I can easily find silence in practice. I can find silence at different times of the day, in the morning, when it's early and it's quiet outside and I'm journaling and I'm in the relative silence of my mind, just that singular practice of fountain pen to paper. Or still in the morning when my partner's away at work and I have that time to myself. Or a walk outside in the neighborhood, out to one of the parks, and there is silence between bird call and barking dogs that is just natural in nature. I don't know how else to describe it, but I can even lay down and have a bath or on the bed and close my eyes and just let myself be aware in that silence. But meditation as a practice... Oh, I have practiced. (laughs) It's the most challenging thing for me because, well, I've tried many different things. In in 2005, for example, I went on a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat, which was possibly one of the most physically and emotionally challenging commitments I've ever made. And I fluctuate between using Sam Harris's meditation app. It's called Waking Up. And I find that can be really helpful because he's looking at aspects of consciousness and awareness or just trying to sit in stillness without fidgeting. But when I accomplish the, the fundamental outcome of meditation, which is just to be aware and to let 
the thoughts flow and to bring yourself back to that point of no thought, no thinking, or no awareness, knowing that there's no such thing as no, no thoughts, they will always appear. The benefits are tremendous. And I will go to these people who have thought and practiced and reflected over many years of the practice, such as Ram Das, and he offers insight on the value of meditation. Even when you think you should be out fighting for what you believe in, for your rights, your freedoms, and protesting against injustice, and so on. So he says, and I quote, Then I began to see that staying alone in that room at that moment was confronting me with an internal battle which was much fiercer than any external batter, battle I had ever fought before. And until I had found some way through that internal battle, all I could do was get sucked into the external manifestations of it in such a way as to perpetuate them. So until I had found some way through that internal battle, all I could do was get sucked into the external manifestations of it in such a way as to perpetuate them. So if all you're ever doing inside is fighting and thinking and creating your own divisiveness and thinking how you're going to argue against someone else, you're perpetuating that anger. You're perpetuating that tension. You're perpetuating that reaction instead of response. Meditation shows me, and this is my own experience, without any filter, because I can't lie to myself when I'm meditating. There ain't no filter. It shows me my state of mind. It shows me my emotional and physiological states. There's no hiding or suppressing my lack of kind of emotional balance or the fact that I haven't had enough rest or the fact that I'm not being open-hearted I'm not being clear-minded, or I'm not feeling equanimity. It's very apparent what I am and what I am not feeling, what I am and what I am not capable of in those moments when I'm meditating. And this is precisely the reason why it's so challenging for many people and why so many people give up on meditating or refuse to do it because they don't want to see, to feel, to be aware of their state of mind. They don't want to see the dark. They'd rather watch something funny, smoke a joint, have a drink, go out and party. And there's times and places for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is that the only way through the dark is to shine light in the darkness, to find the path. And ignoring the dark only takes you further into it. And it will manifest even more so and eventually eclipse the light. So this is what I am trying to better understand and practice and thus improve and evolve about myself. That there's no end goal for achieving a perfect state of mind. There's only the steady and regular practice that allows you to become more adept at quickly going into the gap, that, that place in meditation of equanimity, that place of no ego, that place of no reaction, that place of, ah, seeing that you could have been for a moment out of your mind, 
but getting into that place where you might be able to respond. Now, when I say out of your mind, from a neuroscience perspective, we could say we have a mind. That's what I'm using right now when I'm sharing these ideas with the podcast. The prefrontal cortex, how we think, how we ra- uh, rationalize, how we analyze, how we criticize, how we come up with our goals, how we tell jokes, how we tell stories. That's your mind. But your mind is part of your brain. And we have our mammalian brain, we have our reptilian brain, and we have a few other parts responsible for many different things. But when you are out of your mind, you're not in response, you're in reaction. And then the older, more primitive, ancient behavioral brains, the animal brain, the reptilian brain, they're doing what they need to do to feel safe, to feel secure. And as the coach I'm working with right now says, most of us are spending the majority of our time trying to feed the animals, meaning the animals are those ancient parts of our brain that aren't allowing us to get into our minds. And in a sense, our our human brain, our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain, is like a spectator on one side of the cage at the zoo. And I said one side of the cage because it's more or less like our, our mind is the part of the brain that's actually in the cage. The animals are outside. They're the ones that are reigning free most of the time. That's the reason there's so much anger and divisiveness and a lack of civility when, when the animalistic brains are in charge and roaming free and stressed out and scared and insecure. They're only looking out for themselves and they will do whatever they need to do to make sure that their needs get met. And you see, as we learn more about this, about ourselves... What we learn about ourselves is a way of understanding that everyone else is just like us in that way. When we are on the defensive, we have a mindset or a brain set of us versus them. You see, if we were in our minds, if we were able to logically think, we would probably be able to have a better conversation, even if we were on the opposite side, and be able to connect with what another person was saying. But if we're in a defensive state of mind, we're actually in a state of brain. We're actually not in our thinking mind as much as we might think we are. So as Ram Dass says, and I quote, they aren't the other They aren't the other. They are part of our tribe. And that's what is frustrating to us. We need to engage with a deeper listening. We need to understand and appreciate the causes and conditions that created this particular landscape. We need to learn what produced the storyline in which we have become invested and in which we are intractably bound up. Well, I don't think Ram... Das knew really much about what we know with respect to neuroscience today. But for thousands of years, meditation was teaching us what we are learning scientifically about the construction of the brain 
and what psychology and biology is learning about how the brain works. So nothing productive, nothing helpful in the way of human achievement, goal-setting, philosophical debate will happen until we as humans get our most basic, primal needs met. So we need to feel safe and secure. We need to feel connection, love. And when we feel that way, when those older parts of the brain can settle down, there's, there's nothing to worry about, that's when the thinking brain can take control, however temporarily. And that's when we can have a discussion. That's when we can do the work to avoid creating the things that we're fighting against. And a closing quotation from Ron Das. A big lesson that we have learned is that social action is effective when spiritual quietness, listening, and the witness are present. With the cultivation of spiritual values like compassion, love, and wisdom, all actions have the possibility of a positive outcome. We can't make a difference when we are enraged. We can't make a difference when we are enraged. When you go out about your day-to-day, if you want to practice this, whenever you feel like you're getting physically tense or you're feeling an anger response in any way, breathe, count your breaths nice and slow and inhale and then exhale. And do that five times. Just think in-breath all the way in, and then just a gentle, non-forcing, no-holding exhale. Or quietly to yourself, just close your eyes, and opening your mouth, counting backwards. Five. Four. Very slowly, just like that, all the way to one. And those two actions allow us to center into our mind. When you focus on the breath, you're taking care of the most primal safety aspect that you can breathe, that you're alive, that the air you're sensing that is coming into your body is safe. It calms down the nervous system. With the counting backwards and also using the vocal cords to say those numbers aloud and focusing on the slowness of that, you are really working the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, to come and play in action and to try and manage your behavioral state. And then get curious about what the other person said. Why do they think that way? Is there any small part of what they have said that you can understand or relate to or speak to to build that bridge, however flimsy, to the other side, to design that new landscape 
in which we can create and evolve. <laughs>